0: I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Into the Mix, a Ben and Jerry's podcast about joy and justice, produced with Fox Creative. Shh, And welcome to the library. Or should I say, welcome to my favorite place on earth. My grandmother taught me to cherish a good story and going to the library was a frequent treat for me and my siblings. Our home wasn't always peaceful growing up, but the library was calm, reliable, and filled with possibility. Literature was my entry point into the world, a beacon of life outside of the one I was born into. I was galvanized reading books about girls like me who were brave and cunning and who knew their worth even when the world told them they didn't matter. When I ventured beyond the children's section, I found books for grown-ups that put into words the feelings that were just beginning to cast shadows in my young heart. Eventually, I wrote my own book, a memoir called Somebody's Daughter. It's about love and family and forgiveness, and also about the powerlessness I used to feel as a kid and the ways I grew past it. You hear writers say this a lot, but I wrote the kind of book that would have meant everything to me if I'd found it in my hometown library. So it's not hyperbolic to say that books and libraries save lives. They saved mine, and I'm not alone.
1: All right, friends, today we are going to be reading a, a fairy tale today. So there are a couple of things that we're going to focus on today with our lesson. And in this fairy Once tale... Once you can read, no one can take that from you. That is something that you will have forever, and that is something that can take you further in life.
0: This is Andrea Phillips, a reading interventionist at a public elementary school in Jacksonville, Florida. With silver hair and a warm, youthful smile, she's the kind of teacher who radiates love for her students. She absolutely glows when she talks about teaching.
1: So as an interventionist, I see between 60 and 70 students a day, working with students who are reading below grade level and seeing them grow. You know, every teacher will tell you, oh, it's when you see that aha moment. And that's kind of a canned answer that teachers have. But it's true, because when you see that, click happen with a kid and they get it, something in your heart just goes they did it, they did it you have this pride and you're just you're so happy for them and so I get just as much from the kids as they do from me
0: Andrea has spent the better part of a decade carefully curating her classroom library, stocking it with all kinds of books, from detailed picture books about science, to historical fiction chapter books, to books with fart jokes. Whatever gets kids excited about reading.
1: If you ask any of one of my students, you know, what does Ms. Phillips say about books? And they'll tell you, she says books are treasures. Because every day I say, you know, be nice to that book. Books are treasures. They're worth gold in my classroom. So be good to the books. I would go to used bookstores, friends of the library sales. I would put calls out on social media and ask for book donations. And so it was such a diverse set of books, not just on topic, but on level. All of my kids could find something on their level to read independently and read successfully.
0: So it was a devastating blow when in January 2023, she was told to pack up her classroom library and keep it away from her students.
1: That was really hard. That was probably the hardest teaching day I have ever had.
0: Last year, Florida lawmakers passed House Bill 1467, which required that every book in public school libraries and classrooms be cataloged and reviewed for harmful content. The bill also required that schools develop a system to remove any book once it's challenged by a parent. In this context, harmful can mean books that center queer characters, or historically accurate depictions of racism. Even classics that are required reading elsewhere are being targeted for removal. Books like mine, for instance, which includes my lived experiences with sexual assault and family violence, could be pulled from Florida bookshelves if even one parent decides it's quote-unquote harmful. House Bill 1467 is just one component of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis' Year of the Parent initiative. Governor DeSantis says his mission is to give parents more of a say in what their kids are learning and to combat what he calls woke indoctrination in public schools. In practice, it limited student access to library books in Florida for the better part of a
1: school year. So as you can see, I have all of my books boxed up and packed up. These are this is my total collection of books.
0: Moral panics about books have been happening throughout our nation's history. Today's is in Florida, but before that it was in New York in the 1980s. Think 1950s McCarthyism and the Comstock Act of 1873, and the Daughters of the Confederacy shaping history textbooks after the Civil War, even book burnings in China and Nazi Germany. Every time this kind of debate comes up, it begs the question, who gets to decide what makes a book harmful? Why should one parent's objection make a book off-limits to an entire district? And is this really about protecting kids from dangerous books? Class is now in session. Let's get into it. For years, Andrea's classroom has been a haven. And not just for students in her second and third grade reading
1: groups. You know, fourth and fifth graders would come to my room and say, hey, um, do do you think it would be okay? Could I get a book, too? You know, and teachers would say, hey, can I send so-and-so down to get a book? Yeah, bring them down. Send them down. Get some books. Take one for your little brother and sister to read. Take two. So it's going to be a three-day weekend. You better take an extra book. That was something that I was really proud of. my biggest goal is just to instill a love of reading that kids will sit down and grab a book for pleasure. So I just, I, I really want books that have faces that look like my kids, books that kids are going to pick up. They're going to find them funny. They're going to, they're just going to want to read them over and over again. I had a diverse set of books that not only help someone see themselves in a book, but they might see someone they know in that book and go, oh, wow, this is what so-and-so is going through. You know, I mean, it can really give empathy to students, and that's hugely important. Working with struggling readers, Andrea
0: stresses that her job is about more than just getting kids excited about recreational reading, though that's a big part of it. Success in her classroom can set a course for a child's entire educational journey.
1: When kids struggle with reading, um, behavioral issues are quick to follow because if I can um, get myself in trouble and cause a distraction, people won't know that I can't read. And then those behavioral issues, once you move into like middle and high school, it's no longer, oh, we're going to call mom and she's got to come and pick you up because you had some behavior problems today. You know, now it's, you're suspended from school, you're expelled from school, you're, you know, now your whole education is at risk. So a position like mine is, really important to be able to give those students the extra support that they need.
0: For a lot of Andrea's students, academic success is already an uphill battle. For one, the school where she teaches currently ranks in the bottom 50% of Florida public schools. Reading scores are at 28%, which is almost half the state average. There's an ongoing debate about whether standardized testing can accurately reflect students' intelligence. And some studies suggest there's a racial bias in how tests are administered and evaluated. If anything, these scores say less about students' abilities and more about how public education works in this country. Andrea teaches in a low-income area, and her school qualifies for Title I funding, meaning that at least 40% of the student body comes from families who are hovering just above the poverty line. More than 2,000 Florida public schools qualify for Title I. The purpose of Title I is to give a leg up to schools in low-income areas because public schools are largely funded by local property taxes. So a low-income area means a smaller education budget. Despite the extra funding, there's still a correlation between Title I schools and student performance because small education budgets means lower teacher salaries, larger class sizes, and less access to things like bilingual education or school counselors. This also puts a burden on teachers themselves to give a lot of personal time and resources to make up for smaller budgets, like Andrea curating her own classroom library. This is true for most public school teachers in the U.S., but especially true for schools serving low-income families. As Andrea puts it, a lot of these families are in survival mode, making her work more complicated and more vital.
1: Public schools are... Uh, th- there. There's no replacing them, but I really feel like there is an equity issue within my district. That's why it's our job as educators to be there to give the kids the support that they need and to, you know, fill in the places where mom and dad can't always be there. Public schools are so important because everyone deserves access to the same education.
0: Everyone deserves access to the same education has been a guiding principle in America's public school system for hundreds of years. 19th century education reformer and abolitionist Horace Mann called education the great equalizer, the balance wheel of the social machinery. But education in this country is not equal. It never has been. And schools like Andrea's can't afford to lose any of the few resources they do have. Andrea says she'd heard a bit about House Bill 1467 last year and honestly didn't think much of it, even as it passed. Maybe it would mean sending home more permission slips, but that was about it. She was not prepared for the directive she and her fellow teachers were given.
1: We were all called into the media center and we were shown a video. It stated that due to HB 1467, every single book in the district had to be vetted. And because the district was trying to get in line with that bill, they decided that they would remove all books from classroom libraries and from media centers, all to be made inaccessible to students.
0: You might be asking yourself... Okay, making a catalog of every book in the district sounds like an undertaking, but can't books stay on the shelves while this review is happening? In Duval County, the answer is no. In 2022, the same year that House Bill 1467 passed, Florida also adopted Statute 847-012. This law made it a felony for any adult to distribute or loan any materials to minors containing verbal descriptions, narrative accounts, or representations of nudity, sexual conduct, sexual excitement, sexual battery. Anything pornographic, which could be considered harmful to minors. Some school administrators read this and worried that if a teacher recommended a book that contained any sexual themes, they could be prosecuted. Violating this law could land you five years in prison and a $5,000 fine. And in the state of Florida, a felony conviction means you'll probably lose your teaching license and your right to vote. And the training video that Andrea and her colleagues were shown that day referenced this statute.
1: Florida Statute 847.012 further describes this and that any person violating any provision of this section commits a felony in the third degree. The instruction of-
0: I've seen the video and let me tell you, it is unnerving. Between effusive thanks, the district's chief academic officer justifies the removal of books as a necessary protection. Thank you for all you do, teachers. Now please lock the books away before you are charged with a felony. As a writer, this is deeply personal to me. Definitions of what counts as obscenity are subjective, and someone with an undiscerning eye could condemn my book as inappropriate or harmful. So could my book land a Florida teacher a felony if they recommended it to a kid whose parents thought it was obscene? As a reader, this is still deeply personal to me. I can't help but think about my younger self. What would have happened to me if one day the place that was my sanctuary was closed off and my teachers were scared to give me the wrong book? Whether intentional or not, this legislation casts a shadow of fear in the classroom, which will probably stay there even after the books are cataloged. Not every Florida school district took this approach, and some have criticized the Duval County School District for overreacting. But in Andrea's view, her district was acting out of an abundance of caution to protect their teachers from potential prosecution.
1: The way that this bill was worded was very vague to the point that people started throwing around threats of, you know, losing your license losing your right to vote, uh, you know, the, the fear mongering that happened with this is, is really terrible. And teachers were scared too. We've lost so many teachers and we have such a teacher shortage. I can see where maybe the line of thinking of, look, well, let's protect these teachers that we have. We don't want them being afraid of losing their jobs or being charged with things. But it was, it was, it was a really hard hit. I felt not only that my autonomy as a teacher had been taken away but I really felt that my trust you know the the way that families trust me the way that my administration trusts me the way that my district supposedly trusted me to choose books I felt like that was gone and so that um that hurt that hurt a lot At first, I just kind of taped off all of my books and put them to the side and made it so that the kids couldn't get to it with caution tape. And the kids came in and they were like, is it Halloween? And, you know, they thought it was kind of funny. I eventually, within a few days, I wound up actually boxing them all up and they didn't come back out this school year. And my kids were just... They were angry. They were sad. Um, You know, when they came in and actually saw all the books gone, they were just like, what did you do with our books and where are they and what's happening?
2: What is happening is that the impetus towards book burning has been channeled today into book banning. After
0: the break, we hear from one expert about the historical context of Florida's House Bill 1467 and others like it. History is hereditary only in this way. We all of us inherit everything and then we choose what to cherish, what to disavow and what to do next, which is why it's worth trying to know where things come from. That's a quote from historian Jill Lapore. I've been thinking about this quote a lot, especially as Florida lawmakers continue to pass legislation that inhibits teaching certain subjects, and as school districts in other states like Texas, Utah, and Missouri adopt similar legislation to remove controversial books. History is hereditary. We've been here before. In 1976, a group of teenagers in New York sued their school board. This was after a parent group was successful in removing nine books that they considered anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and quote, just plain filthy. The Pico versus Island Tree School District case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the students. Chief Justice Brennan said in his decision that the right to free speech also meant the right to receive speech, especially for students. This is playing out again in Florida today. Concerned parents and lawmakers overextending themselves to erase ideas and curriculum that they find dangerous. And for education activists like Seattle-based teacher Jesse Hagopian, we should all be concerned about what's happening in Florida right now.
2: I'm really interested to see what happens with HB 1467. It's truly a dystopian law. The idea that you would threaten teachers with a felony, with five-year jail sentence and $5,000 fine, it is truly horrific. This Debate really isn't about obscenity at all. Education is such a powerful force, and it can help young people understand themselves and it can help them transform society, or it can be used to create conformity and impose authority and train young people to believe that they should accept the current inequalities.
0: History is hereditary. So to understand how we got here, let's talk about where we started.
2: The Founding Fathers used a lot of flowery words about education and equality, but it's important to note that that vision didn't include Black people. It didn't include Native people. It didn't include women. And so there were experiments with forms of schooling Not long after the Revolutionary War, but it wasn't until the 1830s that there began to be a movement for what they called the Common School. Advocates of the
0: Common School believed that offering state-funded education that was available to all, well, all with an asterisk, was essential for the nation's longevity. It was seen as a civic duty, an investment in the public good. In a lot of ways, these same fundamental principles guide public education today. Though Jesse says it's important not to forget that asterisk.
2: that every step of the way, black communities had to fight to be included as part of what was considered the public.
0: It's not just that black people weren't allowed to attend public schools. For generations, anti-literacy laws made it illegal for Black communities, freed or enslaved, to know how to read or write at all. Because when oppressed people are literate, they start mobilizing.
2: Black people knew there was no true emancipation without education. The Stono Rebellion happened in 1739 in South Carolina. A remarkable man named Jemmy led that uprising of enslaved people and they wrote on a banner the word liberty with an exclamation point and as they marched they collected more enslaved people in their rebellion but the rebellion was put down they were surrounded and attacked and not only were all of them executed for wanting their freedom but the enslavers wanted to kill the idea of freedom. And so in 1740, the first anti-literacy laws were enacted in South Carolina, and they spread throughout the South that made it illegal for black people to be literate. And it often came with severe punishment. If you were caught reading or writing, you could be maimed. You could lose a finger. You could even be killed. And yet Black people refused to give up that right. Like
0: Andrea when she talks about her students, Jesse lights up when he talks about this history. I share the pride he feels for the brave men and women who learned in secret and shared knowledge that could get them killed. But that pride is bittersweet. Because it comes with the understanding that often, these people paid a dear price for their hard-won knowledge. Jesse calls anti-literacy laws a form of violence known as epistemicide.
2: Epistemicide is the killing or the silencing or annihilation of entire systems of knowledge. What Professor Henry Giroux calls the violence of organized forgetting. And there has been many violent attempts to force people to forget their culture, their history, and their past.
0: Jesse says that epistemicide can take a lot of different forms, like when Spanish missionaries burn nearly all of the Mayans' written texts, or when the U.S. government forced Native American children to attend boarding schools and become quote-unquote civilized or when white supremacists burned down hundreds of Black schools during Reconstruction. The common goal was to erase and disrupt systems of education that benefited marginalized people, anything that could threaten the status quo.
2: And I believe that epistemicide is one of the drives of those who seek to destroy ethnic studies, Black studies, critical race theory— and other systems of knowledge that can help us challenge structural racism today.
0: Last year, Florida reported a significant gap in reading levels between Black and white students. Across the state, Black students are reading as much as 29 percentage points lower than white students. In Duval County, where Andrea teaches, it's even lower. Why would lawmakers work to limit kids' access to books?
2: They want to ban students from being able to understand their society, to understand where inequality comes from, and to understand how they could be part of collective struggles to transform society, to make it more more equitable.
1: Where's the lie? Because if you're taking away any of the books in my classroom that are high interest to these students, you're taking away their interest in reading, you're taking away their interest in learning something new. And so what are we going to do? Oh, I'll just go back to my tablet and play this game and veg out on it.
0: Andrea's school student body is predominantly black, and she estimates that a majority of the students in her reading groups are English language learners from families that have either recently immigrated or been displaced from their countries of origin. It's not lost on her that these students inherited a lineage of anti-literacy laws and epistemicide.
1: They don't deserve that. These kids are just brilliant. You know, this is our next generation coming up and, and we need to do everything we can to encourage them to continue on with learning.
0: There's already so much stacked against struggling learners especially students of color living in poverty, American schools are still segregated, not by law like they once were, but by a history of redlining and housing discrimination, built upon a history of enslavement and marginalization. The achievement gap along racial and economic lines is well-documented, and we've known for decades that it's harder for kids at underfunded schools to rise out of poverty. That's why programs like Title I exist, and why schools employ literacy specialists like Andrea. Because at its best, education can be a great equalizer. So what are we doing when we pass legislation that takes resources away from schools where every resource counts? Laws like this make teachers afraid to teach and can disrupt critical education for the kids who need it most. How do we expect vulnerable students, any students, to thrive?
1: So we made it to the end of the school year and um, I still didn't get to get my books back out. So I'm just going to kind of show everybody. On the last day of school, Andrea recorded a video. My estimate is there's probably at least a two to three hundred books here that, um, that shouldn't be in boxes and they should be in kids' hands.
0: It shows a table covered with boxes and boxes of children's books that haven't seen the light of day since January. She was eventually given a list of approved books that she was allowed to use in her classroom, but none of her original curated library got used for the rest of the school year.
1: This makes me a little bit sad that I actually have all these books to take home because um, it's the last day of school. And instead of packing these up and taking these home, I should be putting them in the hands of students and they should be taking them home. Another unexpected result of this law is the toll it's
0: taken on educators. Florida is experiencing what might be the state's worst teacher shortage in history, with thousands of vacancies across the state. Some say it's at least in part because of the burden of highly politicized legislation dictating curriculum. Andrea feels that burden and says it might be getting too heavy to bear.
1: When I first started teaching, I had much more autonomy. Yes, I was given a curriculum that I had to use, but I was also encouraged to find outside resources to bring in so that my kids could relate to these things. But as the years go on and the years go on, it becomes less and less that teachers in Florida are able to do that. And as an interventionist, I don't even have the same pressures that a classroom teacher has, things like grades and parent conferences and standardized testing and all of these things. And it's still it's hard on me and it's kind of pushing me to make a decision if I want to go back or not. And I I haven't made that decision 100 percent yet, but it's really, really hard to be a teacher here.
0: In March of this year, a coalition of Florida's largest teachers' union, along with literacy groups and a pro-democracy organization, challenged House Bill 1467 in a lawsuit. Their argument was that the text of the law was too broad so that subsequent rules put too great a burden on librarians, teachers, and media specialists. At time of recording, the lawsuit is ongoing. In July, former President Barack Obama spoke out in support of librarians and students navigating various book bans, saying, quote, not only is it important for young people from all walks of life to see themselves represented in the pages of books, but it's also important for all of us to engage with different ideas and points of view. Meanwhile, across the country, hundreds of books have been removed from public schools with similar legislation, especially books with LGBTQ characters and themes, as well as discussions of race and racism. At least two counties, Manatee and Duval, instructed teachers and librarians to remove or cover books this school year, which meant that nearly 300 public schools were told to temporarily make books off-limits to more than 175,000 students while educators worked to comply with the new law. Let me say that again. In 2023, at least 175,000 thousand American students went to schools where books were off limits for part of the school year, all part of a political movement that is gaining traction in other states. Towards the end of production on this episode, Andrea got in touch to let us know that she'd finally made a decision about whether she would return to school in the fall.
1: I will try not to cry because I'm sad about it, but... um I went to my administration um, last week and told them that I was going to be resigning.
0: Andrea's health also plays into the decision. She's been fighting stage four breast cancer for the past two years and was starting to feel the physical toll of stress.
1: If in a year my health has declined and I spent that year pushing a rock uphill instead of focusing on my family and myself. I I wouldn't forgive myself. I didn't leave because of the kids, or my administration. The stress didn't come from them. It you know it, it came from the state, and it comes from all this legislation that's being passed. And it it really was just impacting um, my ability to teach the way that I want to teach. Um, the insults that have been thrown at teachers by Saying we are trying to indoctrinate kids, that we're groomers, it's disgusting. So, um, politics in the classroom is really making a difficult job even harder, and so um, that's 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 where we are.
0: As a country, we love to hold children up as rhetorical representations of the best of us. And I'm sympathetic to parents who want to do everything they can to protect their kids. But I cannot accept that taking books away from schools does anything but hurt kids. Any attempt to limit literacy, as far as I'm concerned, is a delusional fight among adults where children are the casualties. Anyone who would tell you that curiosity is dangerous, benefits from a society of small minds. And in my opinion, there's nothing more cruel than denying children public access to literature, when literature might be their only portal to the larger world. We'll have a list of resources in our show notes if you wanna know more about how to support Florida teachers and increase student access to books. Into the Mix is a Ben & Jerry's podcast produced by Vox Creative. This episode was written by Bethany Denton. The Vox Creative team includes lead producers Bethany Denton and Martha D. Sally, production manager Taylor Henry, and production coordinator and associate producer Jessica Bay. Anu Subramanian is our executive producer. The team also includes Ariana Jiffo, senior manager of creative services. Design director, Brittany Fallacy, and post-production stars, Greg Russ and Andrew Hammond. Our engineers for this episode were Kyle Neal and Veronica Simonetti, along with help from Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Israel Tutson. Thanks to Ekemene Ekpo, AJ Gutierrez, and Laura Delorado for their production support. Thanks also to Aaron Watley. The Ben and Jerry's team includes Jay Tandon, Jay Curley, Sanjana Mahesh, Chris Miller, and Palika Mokham. Next month, we're heading to northern Ontario to the front lines of Canada's land back movement. I'm Ashley C. Ford. Thank you for listening.
2: Fox Creative.